We move on to chapter 2. And I've entitled the sermon, The Snob. Okay. Let's see how this goes. Okay. The Snob. And I think everyone here knows a snob. Or you know what a snob is. Right? We are all here honest people. So what does a snob do? Well, a snob snubs. Okay? S-N-U-B-S. And a snub is to ignore outwardly or disdain inwardly someone or something that you think is beneath you. Right? You are higher than that. So let's have a bit of fun now. There are all kinds of snob, you know. Uh, have you come across a coffee snob? Right? So I'm the kind, I, I take three in one coffee or two in one coffee. That's not a problem with me. In fact, I hardly ever take coffee. But some people say, three in one coffee, that's not coffee. So then you either graduate to Starbucks where you pay like seven, eight dollars for, for one coffee or, or even higher kind of gourmet coffee. That is a coffee snob. So what other kind of snob you have? Ice cream snob. You know, seriously, I, I read a review. I went was searching for some restaurants. I read the reviews. Wow, this, this dessert is, is very good, but they use Wall's ice cream. Hey, what's wrong with Wall's ice cream? So they have to go for the high-class one, the others or the I, uh, what, creamery, what, island creamery and, and all those kind of gourmet uh, ice cream because Wall's is like, uh, it's beneath me. Um, what about taste in music? Right? Canto pop. Hey, I'm Cantonese, okay? Canto pop is like low class. Uh, symphony orchestra is high class. Even though the symphony orchestra can be playing canto pop. Then I don't know what class it is. Uh, cars, I think we all know. Uh, yeah. Some people only drive continental cars because Japanese cars are beneath them or or even worse, Korean cars, or even worse, China cars, or watches. Okay, watches is just great. I just read only last week an article written by an ex-Goldman Sachs, uh, one of these investment bankers. He writes this article, The Hierarchy of Watches on Wall Street. Do you know there's a hierarchy of watches on Wall Street? You see, you first start, even as a, a new graduate in a Wall Street firm, you first start with a Rolex. When you join as a junior analyst. And then as you move up, you graduate to something like Patek Philippe, my favorite watch. Okay? Which I don't have. But if there are some imitation ones, uh, hey, let me know. Uh. But not above $20, okay? Uh, then I want to buy an imitation one. Then you graduate to, to Patek Philippe. But the ultimate watch snob is this. A swatch. A cheap, cheap one. Swatch. Because once you become a partner in Wall Street, you can change from Patek Philippe to a swatch. You know why? It says here, when you control time, you don't need to know what time is. Wow! <laughs> when you control time, you don't need to know what time is. You can, you can have a swatch. But what is a Christian snob? It's an oxymoron. It's not supposed to be. It's a contradiction of terms. How can a Christian be a snob and how can a snob be a Christian? But I'm afraid that there were Christian snobs in the first century when James was writing his letter 
to the 12 tribes dispersed, and there are Christian snobs in the 21st century. James, writing to the Christians, he says, my brothers, Christians, my brothers. James chapter 2 from verse 1. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so the word partiality comes in translated elsewhere also as favoritism. And in the King James Version, a very curious term called respect of persons. In the Greek, this is fun, prosopolepsia. And it means literally to accept someone's face. It's kind of like in the old days, um, a subject will kneel before the king with the head bowed, the eyes down, and then the king accepts the person, either by lifting up the face or by saying, rise, then you can face the king. So that's partiality, to be lifting up someone's face. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, are many verses here. One of them, Romans 2, 11, says, for God shows no partiality. Many other verses that talks about God. Ephesians 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, for those of us who have servants. Their master, which is you, and your master, who is God, are in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Colossians 3, verse 25, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, this is when the Apostle Peter was called to the Gentile home of Cornelius. And so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. They were talking about halal and non-halal food, kosher and non-kosher food in Acts chapter 10. And I want to just address this term, respect of persons. In the King James Version, Romans 2, 11 says, for there is no respect of persons with God. It sounds very bad. It's like God doesn't respect anybody. But it's just an old English term. The word means no partiality. God doesn't respect whether you're rich or poor. Of course, He respects you, but He doesn't care whether you're rich or you're poor. There is no partiality with God. So let's be done away with that term, respect of persons. It's an old English phrase. And James here, in chapter 2, presents a very interesting case of Goldfinger. 
James chapter 2 verse 2 talks about the man wearing a gold ring. Actually, the term is gold-fingered. And this man wearing a gold ring gets good treatment from our ushers and our pastors. And someone who is shabbily dressed walks into PPH and he doesn't get any attention or worse, he's being snubbed. He's being shunted off to some far corner to sit there and say, you sit there. The good seats are reserved for people with gold rings. And you say, this will never happen in PPH, right? It never happens in PPH. You know why? Because we are subtler snots than that. We are very subtle. You know, it has been said that England is one of the most snobbish of societies. Right? It is a very class-divided di- uh, society, historically, even up to now. And in fact, that, that, that article that talks about the hierarchy of, uh, of watches, I think it was written by a guy who worked from England. Well, in a book called uh, State of Execution, written by this, uh, actually it's an American guy, but he has some health problems, and he, America didn't accept him in the armed forces in World War II, and he volunteered in, uh, in the British Army and got accepted there. This guy, American, he's a commoner. He tells in this book of an encounter that he had with the upper class of British society. He went to Hatfield House, which is the ancestral estate of uh, Lord Salisbury, a very powerful figure in those days. And Lord Salisbury um, didn't meet him when he went to the door of the Hatfield house that mentioned. Instead, Lady Salisbury met him and met him with a very strange-looking horse. Actually, it's a dog. Okay, it's an enormous hound dog who growled at, uh, at Stewart, the American. And Lady Salisbury said this, and this is true according to this guy who wrote uh, this book. She says, don't worry, Stewart. Bobo never bites a gentleman, only the lower classes. Wow. At that point, Bobo lunged forward and planted his teeth into Stewart, the lower class. Which goes to show that even dogs can be snobs. But this Bobo is a snob. My Bobo is not a snob. Okay, my Bobo likes to play with what we call Singapore specials, right? You don't call them mongrels or tzapcing, okay? A Singapore special. That's the proper politically correct term to call a mixed breed dog. And my bow doesn't really care too much for pure breeds. He likes to play with Singapore specials. And so, do you really think that PPH would pass the, the gold finger test of James chapter 2, verse 2? Do you think that if somebody comes in here with a, with a 3S attire, will we'll pass the test? You know, the 3S means singlet, shorts, slippers, <laughs> which sometimes I see in the second service, not really among here. Actually, not slippers. Huh? It ought to be called flip-flops, but we, we, local term is slippers. If somebody in a 3S attire comes in here, you know, would that be kind of murmuring? Hey, who's that guy? Uh? Where did he come from? Uh? Would there be a murmuring in, in PPH? You think there would be? Well, how many of you know G2000? Not so many. Uh. G2000, well, I was new in Hong Kong and that's like, I don't know, nearly 20 years ago. I was talking to a lawyer friend about suits and clothes 
and this lawyer friend of mine recommended that I buy suits from G2000, saying that it's CNG, and CNG I like. It means cheap and good. <laughs> then a week later, I met this old classmate of mine who, in Hong Kong, was the head of a Spanish bank. We also talked about clothes and suit. And then he declared in Cantonese, G2000, ah, Say G2000, you absolutely cannot wear it. It's like it's beneath you. You cannot be wearing that low-class G2000 stuff. So some, some people say that some go to church to close their eyes. And I hope that none of you are closing your eyes. But others go to eye the clothes. Huh? Well, also, some 20 years ago, no, not 20 years ago, maybe about five, six years ago, I organized a, a dinner uh, for 20 of my classmates. And everybody said that we should have wine. So I said, well, just take the recommended house wine. No? And one of my friends, a Christian banker, who is the director on his church's board of community services, told me, house wine? I don't drink house wine. Please show me the wine list. So I showed him the wine list. Then he ordered something expensive. And I had to foot 5% of the bill. One out of 20. I had to foot 5% of the expensive wine. <laughs> oh, well. Okay, let's look at a few English words that will help us to describe a snob. Okay, a snob is obnoxious. Obnoxious means odiously, that means very smelly. Odiously or disgustingly objectionable. It's highly offensive. A snob is highly offensive. A snob is sanctimonious. I, I said this last week. Uh, sanctimonious means to make a show of being morally superior. I'm superior to you morally. Uh, of being pretentious. You attempt to impress by affecting a greater importance of merit than you actually possess. You are pretentious. You pretend to be so good. Uh, this one is good. This one, I've got to be careful pronouncing it. Because I didn't know how to pronounce it. Obsequious. <laughs> well, you all catch it so fast. <laughs> uh, only if you know Hokkien, it means a dead devil, right? Sequi. Uh, obsequious. That means you, you exhibit a fawning attentiveness. And this definition got problems as well. So I have to, to look up what fawning means. And fawning means to display an exaggerated flattery or, or affection. So this rich guy with a gold ring walks in and you like, wow, you bow before him and all that. Fawning attention. That's a snob. A snob tends to rebuff or avoid or ignore those who they regard as inferior. And one who has this offensive air of superiority, whether it is in, in taste of coffee or ice cream or wine or whatever. And then you judge people. You judge people by the clothes they wear, the car they drive, and worse still, by the color of their skin. So honest people of PPH, are you a snob? And please don't all of you raise your hand at the same time. <laughs> what did I say earlier? Our snobbery is subtler. We are much, much more subtler than this. Because we have reverse snobbery. I was in a group of senior pastors some one or two years ago, and the topic, strangely enough, turned to cars among senior pastors. And one of the senior pastors uh, exclaimed quite loudly that as a senior pastor, I would never buy or drive a BMW. Even though we all know 
that he, he could afford it because he was a very successful businessman and then he became a senior pastor. And that he was very happy with his Toyota, with his quite old Toyota, which never gave him any problems. So when our meeting was over, we all walked to our cars to drive to a restaurant for, for lunch and one of the other senior pastors went into his BMW. You know, have you seen Christians trying to outdo one another to, to show how thrifty they are? That, you know, this is where I buy my cheap clothes. It's really cheap and good. You know, this plant in Malaysia and this, this place in Singapore. And then all the time they are waving their many, many carrot diamond rings. I said, this place, that place, that place. You know, or, or, and then seamlessly the conversation can go from a very cheap clothing to a very exotic, expensive holiday destination. We have no problem doing that. We are not snobs who snub others. We are reverse snobs who snipe at one another in a very sanctimonious, self-righteous, holier-than-thou way. Why did James write, My brothers, show no partiality. My brothers and sisters, Christians, PPH members, show no partiality as you hold forth the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. When we hold for faith, we know that glory belongs only to the Lord of glory. Every other kind of glory is vain glory, which is another old English term just for pride. And we want the glory of being known as thrifty people, righteous people, sensible people. That's even the kind of glory that we want for ourselves. So whether we are obsequious snobs or sanctimonious reverse snobs, the glory, we want that glory for ourselves. But God is impartial because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, barbarian, or even worse barbarians called Scythians. And if you find that in Galatians 3.28 and Colossians 3.11. God is impartial. He doesn't look at the outward. But, you know, in case you now want to go around looking for who's the real snob in PPH or the reverse snob, but let's be clear that we cannot see the heart. We simply can't. So somebody could be walking in with a, with a gold ring and many carrot diamonds, but in their heart, hey, they're purer than you. They give away more to charity than you who dress not so well. So we cannot, simply cannot see the heart. Only God can see the heart. And so as we strive for completeness, as James says in uh, uh, chapter 1, that is, we strive for spiritual maturity, let's not judge. Let's not judge. Instead, let's be merciful. A mature believer is impartial and a mature believer is merciful. James chapter 2, let's read from verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
For judgment is without mercy to, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he who has kept the whole law, so who among us has kept the whole law and not even failed at one point? There's none. There's no such person. Hence, there must be mercy. And mercy trumps judgment. That's a very pure logic of it. Otherwise, we'll all be condemned. Well, Jesus was at the home of Matthew, the tax collector, eating with sinners and tax collectors, and, and then there were murmurings, what is Jesus doing? So why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? And then Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Further in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The trouble is, we are judgmental of others, but we are merciful to ourselves. We judge others by their action, but we judge ourselves by our intention. What do I mean? So, somebody, you're driving and somebody cuts in front of you, right? They say, why did this idiot driver cut into my lane? His action deserves punishment. But when you cut into somebody else's lane, you say, oh, I was momentarily distracted. I didn't see this car next to me or behind me. Oh, I was in a hurry. And can't you see that I'm driving my sick child to the hospital? That's my intention. Intention is so innocent. And it deserves mercy. Right? Surely I deserve it. I just got distracted for a while. I deserve mercy. I don't deserve punishment. But when we see the other guy, that protagonist's action, we cannot see his intentions. And so we judge without mercy. We judge without empathy because we never put ourselves in their shoes, but instead with an air of superiority. I would never do that. You remember when the disciple John saw someone casting out demons in Luke chapter 9? Luke chapter 9, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Other translation says, he is not following us. He's not one of us. He's not one of our group. Was that snobbish behavior or what? James and John, they are called the sons of thunder, nicknamed by Jesus, the sons of thunder. They had hot temperament. They were aggressive. They were self-assertive. They were self-promoting. They wanted to sit at the left and the right of, of Jesus, the top two positions under Jesus, remember? And then a few verses later, when a village in Samaria refused to welcome Jesus, Luke chapter 9, verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw that, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Wow. Why? Because they were Samaritans. They were cockroaches. They were pigs. And we ought to napalm them into oblivion. You know, by this time, by the time that Jesus completed his three-year discipleship course with James and John, they were totally transformed. And with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, James gave his life as a martyr. Recorded for us in Acts. John was transformed into, of all things, sons of thunder, self-assertive, self-promoting, what is he called now? An apostle of love. They finally understood what mercy was. Philip Yancey, a very famous author, I, I, I hope that all of us will read his books. I think I've read every single one. 
In this book called What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells the story of someone meeting a prostitute who was renting out her two-year-old daughter to men for kinky sex. I mean, you cannot think of anything worse than that. In order to support her own drug addiction, and someone went to this prostitute and asked, have you ever thought about going to church for help? And it's recorded in that book. It said, I never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed the prostitute's face. And she said, church? Why would I ever go to a church? I already feel bad enough about myself. They will just make me feel worse. But women like this, flock to Jesus in Jesus' days. They ran toward him. They don't run away from him. So what happened in 2,000 years that causes a person like this to flee the church when they would have flocked to Jesus? It's because we have forgotten about mercy. Philip Yancey again, and this is really, I tell you, this is of God. Philip Yancey posted something on Facebook. I've never known that Philip Yancey had a Facebook page. It came through via somebody, somebody, and then I clicked on it. And Philip Yancey posted this last Wednesday only. He said he, he said he forgot his wallet and he had only enough coins in his pocket. Uh, he had three, $4.35, US dollars, $4.35 in his pocket. And he went to a petrol kiosk and he said, he threw out all the coins and he said, he apologized for the coins. And he said, can you just fill up $4.35 for me? That should be just enough for me to get home to my wallet. And now I read from his Facebook. A tattooed, streaked hair, nose ring, chain-smoking young woman came up to me. And she said, I've been going through a rough patch and I need some good karma. Okay, that's a very wrong philosophy. And she said, so I gave the guy, the, 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 the petrol kiosk attendant, an extra $5 for your pump, for Philip Yancey's petrol. And Philip Yancey says, I was momentarily speechless. No one's ever done anything like that for me. I said, at last, bless you. You've completely changed my day. I gave her a hug and she walked off with a wave before I could even get her name. From an encounter with a total stranger, I got two important reminders today. First, I sensed once again the radical power of grace. Free, undeserved, no strings attached, in a tough, make-your-own-way world. Second, I thought of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. As I saw on a poster once, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. And by the way, if by chance that kind stranger happens to be reading this, thank you. So let's learn from this. A mature believer is impartial. A mature believer is merciful. And thirdly, a mature believer has faith that works. A mature believer's faith works. Let's continue reading from James chapter 2, from verse 14. What, what good is it? My brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled 
without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and he was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's faith that works. And James chose three illustrations. Firstly, someone who is poor, and has a physical need, you don't just say to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled. And the modern day equivalent is take care, which I use a lot, unfortunately. Oh, take care. You don't just talk, you take action, you feed, you clothe, you comfort. The second illustration is Abraham, who offered in obedience his son at the altar, and he worked this faith. I don't know how he worked it out in his mind and in his spirit, but he worked it out. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19 gives me some kind of consolation that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so it worked. His faith resulted in works. And then the third one, from the patriarch Abraham to the prostitute Rahab, she believed that God was with the Israelites. And then she took action. She worked based on that belief and that faith. And she helped the spies escape the clutches of her own people. I read a very, very old uh, illustration from an, an old book, and he called it this, the simple eloquence of a salvationist. I think it was maybe Salvation Army or something. A salvationist servant lass, a, a servant girl, who said, my missus, that means my, my, my mom." my employer. My employer says she believes I am safe because I sweep under the mats and I didn't before. You understand? That before she was a Christian, what was under the carpet, she didn't bother. It can remain dirty and there was a lot of dirt under the carpet, she didn't bother. But after she became a Christian, she was a conscientious worker. She lifted up the mats or the carpet and she even swept under the carpet. And then her employer said, oh, by that action of yours, I believe that you are a true believer. Wow. Doesn't it sound so simplistic? How can it be, right? Just sweeping. Uh, and you can confirm that you're a Christian? Are you naive or what? But was Abraham and Rahab also naive? That Abraham would do such a thing? to offer up his son, or Rahab would go against where she was brought up, her own people, and betray her own people based on that simple faith that God was in this. 
So we say we have faith. Then our faith must work. In other words, our faith must be put into action. Our faith, our behavior must be dictated by our faith, our belief. A simple example would be this. Say your boss asks you to, to pay a bribe or to cook the books if you're an accountant or just to do something unethical. So, for the sake of your job and to feed your family and make sure that you're not sacked, are you going to do it? Or will you say no, at the risk of being fired? If we believe that God is righteous and loving and that He's Jehovah Jireh and we sing about it, our provider, then we will take one action. If we believe that God is far away, He's uninterested in little old you and that and then you will conform to the ways of the world. And so you show your faith by your works, your action, your behavior. If you are afraid to take the right and the righteous action, then do you actually believe in God or not? What is faith without works? What is faith that doesn't work or has no works? It is demonic. Yes, you believe in God. Even the demons believe in God and the demons tremble. The demons shudder. Well, you may not even tremble. Faith that does not have action is faith that does not work, is faith that is dead, is faith that is demonic. You know, all this talk about works and deeds may bother what I would call another kind of snob. Uh, what I would call a grace snob. You know, when Pastor Lawrence Chua came and talked to us a few weeks ago about purported grace or pseudo-grace or that one-dimensional uh, grace that is that uh, grace is solely and only unmerited favour and forget about sanctifying grace and all that. And I've, I've come across grace snobs who look down on you. You know, I'm so proud of, say, our PPH, uh, CSC and our members all coming together to work. And then they will turn their noses up at you as though they smell something bad and say, I'm past all this already, you know. I'm past all this already. My faith is now purer. I'm on higher ground. It's God, just favor me. Wow. God is so great. God is so great. Not, I, I don't need to work. It's not works about anymore. It's just God is so great. God favors me. It's like a grace snob. There is a teaching in Luke chapter 14 that really troubles me for, for the longest time. The context was Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. He worked on the Sabbath. Right in the home of a Pharisee, a chief Pharisee, a Pharisee who's on the council, I think it's a Sanhedrin. And then he continued to teach in, James, uh, in, in Luke chapter 14, verse 12 onwards. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, this chief Pharisee, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. I've never done that. And I swear I'm not a snob. When I do invite people to my home, for dinner, they are usually church friends or cell group members or church staff or family or rich friends. 
who more often than not will invite me back and to food that is better than what I have served them. Or it's like, okay, I host you this time and next time you host me, it's like fair and square. But the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, what did Jesus mean? So I checked the Greek to find if there's a way out of this. There isn't. How can I spiritualize this? It's like, oh, now when I walk past the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, I will say a prayer for them. Lord, bless them. And in my heart of hearts, I'm having a thank-cost dinner with them in my spirit. Then we're thinking like, like snobs. You know? How about we turn it upside down? What if you were the poor? You were the crippled, you were the lame, you were the blind. And someone invites you. My goodness. Say, I'm poor and I'm crippled and I'm lame and I'm invited to this feast and I'm treated like royalty. I am warmly welcomed at the door. You call me by my name. You even know my name. And, and, and I thought since I'm so poor, you just serve me bihun with one slice of luncheon meat, processed food with trans fat. I mean, that's good enough for a poor person, right? But no, it's a feast. It's a feast. It's like, it's like our Friday breakfast uh, in, <coughs> in CSC every, every Friday morning. And, and by the way, I need to make a correction. Last week, I said it was like 50 to 60 people at our Friday breakfast. No. Our, on average, it's 90 to 100. And we're really bursting at our seams. And I want to show you a, 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 a video that I just took last Friday. Last Friday was low attendance. Okay, I make sure CST counted and, and they always count anyway and give me the number. The number was 84. And when I went there, not all 84 has come yet, but I'm just thinking, one day uh, we'll have bird's nest for breakfast. Man. <laughs> Who can sponsor? Anyway, just watch this video. It's, it's really a joy to, to be there and there's a lot of credi credibility when, when we work, when your faith works. You know, last Friday I was there, I'm just looking out to see whether the man is here or not. I think he's not. So this man spoke to me and the first, I said, hey, where's your son? Oh, my, my son is uh, sick, the medicine, you know, um, he, he, yeah, he, he sleeps and the medicine makes him drowsy and all that. And I said, you see, my son wasted, a total wasted life. 40 years old, cannot work, he's sick all the time. And I think he had brain surgery or something like that. All I was able to do was just say a few words. I say, well, it's not wasted. Okay? He's a precious child of God. We just don't understand. Okay? But when we get to heaven, we will understand. It's not wasted. And I believe that gave him a little bit of comfort uh, while he was having breakfast. Uh, together with us. And I believe that that faith worked a little bit 
because there was breakfast, there was an opportunity to talk like that. Otherwise, otherwise I knock on his door and say, hey, this is track, I believe in Jesus. Huh? And uh, it's not going to work. Not going to work. So let me just summarize. A mature believer, that's what we all strive to be, complete in Christ, impartial. That really is no secret for, for not being a snob. You know? It's only one thing that turned back to, to face the Lord and how He has blessed us. That we are the lame, the crippled, the blind, the poor, and He accepted us. And then our thinking changed, our behavior changed. To be merciful, don't be judgmental. You don't know everything. You cannot see the heart. And somebody may look really terrible and obnoxious to you, but there is a secret there that you don't know. So be merciful. And lastly, work out the faith. Just imagine God saying, wow, look at you guys. Huh? You have no idea, man. You have no idea what your inheritance in Christ is like. What my Jesus has prepared for you when you meet Him. You cannot even begin to imagine what the marriage supper of the Lamb is. What I have prepared for you. You Singaporeans think you live in food paradise. You don't know what food is. Wait till you get to heaven. And, and I just ask of you one thing, okay? Don't be a snob. And don't even be a reverse snob. Don't be judgmental. Be merciful. Work out your faith. Trust me, I can do more than you can ask or think or imagine. Imagine God saying that. And He did, right, in Ephesians 3.20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's our God. And that's why we cannot be partial, we cannot be judgmental, and we cannot have a faith that doesn't work. Let me invite the music team to come and share this song together. Same song that we sang last, last week. Surely faith without works is dead. And each one of us needs to work out our faith with fear and trembling. I cannot be saying that everybody must go to Friday breakfast, everybody must do this and do that. But, but everybody must look toward a God who loves us so much, who accepts us, and that He's prepared something wonderful for us. There is a power at work within us that we might serve the poor, serve the crippled, serve the lame, serve the blind, serve the needy, that we might meet a need out of faith that is in our hearts. Shall we rise? Surely children were made for the streets And fathers were not made to live Surely this isn't how it should be Let your kingdom come Surely nations were not 
Thank you for the reminder that our faith is a practical faith. And so God help us, help us to be impartial, that we are not snobs or reverse snobs, or any kind of snobs, that our hearts will always be pure because we are the ones, the crippled, the lame, the poor, the blind, who's been richly blessed, received by you, loved by you children of Almighty God. And that's why we can be merciful. Like God, our Father is merciful. And so God, help us to be not judgmental, but to be full of mercy. Now as we look at the hurting, 
the weak, the undeserving. Lord, as you are a shelter for the hurting, as you are a refuge for the weak, as you bless the undeserving, help us to do the same. That the sons and daughters of a merciful and loving God, that we would bear that likeness of God. So each in our own way, in the very special circumstances and families and workplaces that you put us in, open our eyes, Lord, tomorrow. Open our eyes to see the hurting, the weak, the undeserving and work out our faith that we would be a blessing to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name.